Thank you for listening to the Bible preaching ministry of Dr. Tim Pollock at the Home Church of Lodi, California. You can get more information about our church and about starting a relationship with Jesus Christ at www.thehomechurch.net. Our prayer is that this message from God's Word will renew your heart and mind today. need that. And although it's not always possible to know exactly why God is silent, when we pray, we want to at least be confident that God is listening. And more importantly, he will answer us. Maybe in his own time, but at least he will answer us. Now in my experience, there is at least two common barriers to a healthy prayer life. The first one I've seen is concentration. Our human minds are so prone to wander. Sometimes I feel like the guy I read of. Two men are on a journey one day. The first complains to the second that he never focuses on anything. He's always being distracted by something. The second man disputes the claim, says he can and he does focus on what he needs to do. The first man says, all right then, I bet you a banana split. You can't even walk five minutes with me praying in your heart without getting distracted. You're on, the second man says. About a minute later, the second man says, do you think I could have two cherries with that banana split? Yes, our thoughts are so prone to wander, aren't they? Now, there are a lot of reasons why we get distracted. Screen time, social media, and many other facets of modern life have greatly affected our ability to concentrate. Things are really different than they were, let's say, a hundred years ago, where things were often quieter, not so many distractions. In an office, in a study of office workers, they found that on average... The average office worker can only concentrate for no more than three minutes. Strange, isn't it? And according to the University of California, Irvine, they said that after you're distracted, if you're a worker like that, in an office, it takes 23 minutes and 15 seconds to get back on task fully. That's some serious issues there. Maybe... That's exactly why Jesus recommended a closet to people who are serious about prayer. He said, because in a closet there's a distraction-free zone. Go to a place where you won't be distracted. And so, I find that many of us, myself included, we have to be careful or we will not concentrate. But there's a second concept.
capacity, and that's not concentration, but consternation. That is fear. Fear really affects a lot of people's prayer life. Fear, like, am I actually praying correctly? Or does God even want to answer my prayer? Or what if I say the wrong thing? Well, thank God I'm here to announce this morning that the blessed Holy Spirit intercedes on our behalf. And He is more interested in the spirit of the words than in the speaking of the words. And he certainly is more concerned about heartless words than there would be flawless words. The fact is, on our own, we'll never be worthy. In the presence of pure perfection, who's worthy to pray to God? But if we're willing, that's what blesses the Father. And if we're willing, then we go in and through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Yet, despite our Lord's faithfulness to listen and answer our requests, the tragic fact is we are not always faithful as we should be. And that actually has a real impact on our prayer life. Now, over the last weeks, we have been going over positive conditions in prayer. Things that uh, should we do, we could really see God answer in a great way. But there are some things that hinder our prayers, yes? Hamper our ability to really get through to God. We might say these are negative concerns. And so, that's the message this morning. But praise God, there are no uh, obstacles that are the match for the grace of God. And as we ID them, we can and we will overcome them. A mother invited some people to dinner. At the table, she turned to her little six-year-old daughter and said, Would you like to say the blessings, sweetie? I don't know what to say, the girl replied. Well, just say what you hear mommy say, the mother answered. The little girl bowed her head and with sincerity in her voice said, Lord, why on earth did you invite all these people to dinner? <laughs> you know, I think uh, that might be a petition that we might be thinking this week. Why did all these people go? The fact of the matter is that uh, God loves to answer our prayer. And so this morning, let's go to God and find out some obstacles to prayer. Let's bow for prayer. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. And I pray now that, Lord, this would be a distraction-free zone. That this would be sort of a prayer closet, even here in California. The Lord, our minds, for those that are listening by means of the airwaves, Lord, they too would just be able to focus. Holy Spirit, meet with us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Over the last few weeks, we have looked at things like the motivation for prayer, the power behind prayer, prerequisites for prayer, how to have authority in prayer, how to build your faith in prayer. We talked about how to be in the, a spirit of prayer all the time. We talked about having fuel for prayer. And then we last week mentioned how important it is to just keep thanking God. Not only asking for requests, specific requests, but thanking God for specific requests. And as we do, the favor of God flows. Now let's step right into this message. Now because of the nature of this particular topic, we're going to be looking at verses from all over the Bible. So from Genesis to Revelation, so get your walking shoes on. Number one. Seven obstacles to prayer. Clearly, Scripture gives us at least seven. I'm sure there's more. But let me give you seven. First of all, a selfish purpose. The first hindrance to prayer we see in a very familiar passage. Now, we have visited this gold mine several times in our journey together over the last couple of months. James chapter 4 and verse number 3. Ye ask, and ye receive not, because you ask amiss, or you're off target on your praying. Why? Because you are trying to consume it upon your lust. Now, in the verse before that, he said, you don't have because you don't ask. And then we say, well, I do ask. He said, well, it's not enough to just ask. You've got to be careful about, really, how you ask. The 
Don't ask the wrong way in the sense that you're just consuming upon your lust. A selfish purpose in prayer just guts prayer of its power. It's presence. The fact is many prayers are greedy. Many prayers are gluttonous and grabbing. And we become so self-absorbed, that's the way it happens. For example, this morning, which interests you more? Who Jesus is or what he can do for you? I'm afraid many of us are more concerned about what he can give us than what we can give him as Lord of Lords and King of Kings. Sadly, this is nothing new. Jesus had this same problem when he walked on earth. The crowds often gathered around him, but simply to see what they could get from him. Now, it's kind of like voting for the candidate, you know, that has the most giveaways. But now, God truly does care about our needs, and we're thankful for that. But there's a fine line between selfishly trying to use the Lord to get what we greedily want and humbly coming to Him with our needs and with our desires and with our struggles so we can accomplish what He wants. God, I need this so I can accomplish Your will. Lord, I need this so I can be better at doing Your will rather than, Lord, I want this just because I want to be happier I want to have something better than somebody else. A selfish prayer seeks personal gratification. Whether it's within God's will or without God's will, that's really not much of the issue. A selfless prayer is different. A selfish prayer, it's all about me. A selfless prayer, I want you, God, to do what you want to do so I can be better for you, ultimately, so you can be glorified. And that is the first problem in prayer is that we are so selfish, we're not seeking God's glory. An atheist group pressured weak government politicians in the state of Washington to place an anti-God, anti-religion placard to sign right in the state capitol adjoining a Christian nativity scene. The atheist sign was installed by members there in the state of the Freedom from Religion Foundation. You may have heard of that. It's a group, national group based in Madison, Wisconsin. Here's what the placard read. At this season of winter solstice, may reason prevail. There are no gods, no devils, no angels, no heaven, no hell. This is only our natural world. Religion is a myth, a superstition that hardens hearts and enslaves minds. Now the foundation co-president, Dan Barker there, said it was very important for the atheists to be able to express their viewpoint. We feel like we should have equal time. Now, anybody who has a brain in their head knows that that's not what they want. They did not want equal time at all. They wanted to reject the gospel message. They did not want Jesus to get any glory at Christmas. They did not want God to get glorified in any way. You can't have, I can't have a selfish purpose and expect that God is going to give anything to us. They just couldn't stand Jesus Christ getting glory during the Christmas time. Seven scriptural obstacles to prayer. Number one, a selfish purpose. Number two, a sinful proceeding. The second obstacle prayer is found in that wonderful Old Testament book of Isaiah. Go to chapter 59. The people of Israel had a question. They were wondering, what can we do about the enemy? What are we going to do about what's going on in our country? Will God ever hear us? Can we get deliverance? And that wonderful old prophet said, absolutely. But you need to listen. So in verse number one, behold... Now, when a preacher says, Behold, he wants you to listen up. He wants you to really focus now. Focus for a moment, folks. The Lord's hand is not shortened. If you were to read maybe a loose flowing and paraphrase, it would say, God's hand hasn't been amputated. God's hand is still there. That it cannot say, neither is his ear heavy. 
He has no longer, he's not deaf that he cannot hear. But verse 2, this is where he gets right inside you. But your, there is nothing wrong with God. If your enemies are not defeated, it's not God's fault. It's on you, he said. But your iniquities, that's an important word, have separated or have become a barrier, a hindrance, an obstacle between you and God. And then he just lays it out as clear as can be. Your sins, your iniquities, your sins have hid his face from you that he will not hear. Notice it doesn't say he cannot hear. It doesn't say God doesn't answer prayer anymore. It doesn't say things don't happen like that anymore. It just says he won't do it because of sins and iniquities. Now the implication is very clear. God is more than willing to step in and help in our situation. But those people were living such unbiblical lives, such ungodly lifestyles. It would have been mockery for God's holy name for him to endorse the way they were living. There's simply no other way to couch it. Sin hinders prayer. Many a man, many a woman prays and prays and prays and absolutely seems like they get nowhere. And so we begin to wonder, well, maybe God doesn't do that anymore. Or maybe there's really not a God. We begin to wonder about God. And that's that stinking thinking that begins to get into our brain. And the plain squeaking prophet said, it's not God. <laughs> If your prayers aren't getting answered, don't think that it's not, that it's God somehow. God is listening as much as he ever has. You are the problem, he says. First of all, he says, your iniquities and your sins have separated you. What are these iniquities and sins? Well, Dr. Paul Ennis, in the Moody Handbook of Theology, gives two different words here, explanations of these two words. First of all, let's look at the word sin. It's the most common word in both the Old and the New Testament for that which is not pleasing to God. Almost 800 times it's used in Scripture, and it simply means to miss the mark. For example, in Romans chapter 3, it says, Paul stated very clearly, he said, we all have fallen short of the glory of God. It's a very good word picture there. Have you ever shot an arrow? Several times over the years, I've tried it. The first time I tried it was in high school. The gym teacher decided that he would have archery lessons. And so they set up some hay bales there. I don't suppose they do that anymore. And then they gave us these funky looking bow and arrows that we were supposed to... Uh, well, that was way back when Noah was still building his ark. So, um, so they, uh, they said, I want you to take it and shoot it. So I think we could have thrown the arrow farther than those things. But, uh, but I did. I tried to shoot it and it went out... It went several feet and it just dropped to the ground. I fell short of the target by a long way. Now, it wasn't because I didn't try, it wasn't because I didn't give it my best, but it fell short. And so even good-willed people fall short of God's perfect mark. And that's what they're saying here. He said, there's a mark, there's a standard that God expects and we fall short. And it may seem a little challenging for all of us, I'm sure. But then, just so we're clear, it's not just falling short of perfection, because really, that's a challenge for all of us. But we're talking about iniquities as well. Iniquity is a little different word, according to Dr. Ennis. That is a deeply rooted word, a deeply rooted issue. It means a premeditated choice to violate God's law. That is, regardless of what the Bible says, I really don't care. I just, I don't. I'm, I am going to do what I'm going to do because that's the way it's going to roll for me. I don't really care what the Bible says. I don't care what anybody says. I am going to do what I'm going to do. That kind of mind is an iniquitous mind. It means premeditated violating of God's law. Have you ever actually seen or heard or read or viewed a list of sins from the Bible? It's an interesting thing. If you've never done it, I recommend it. This week, just uh, as I was thinking about the message, I looked and found uh, somebody who had compiled all the sins of the Bible. 600 
167. They put it alphabetically. It's a uh, intimidating. It's uh, interesting. It's uh, actually strangely cleansing. It's amazing to be able just to read through and say, wow, that's, God is so amazing. It's so full of holiness and beauty and glory. And no wonder God says we fall short of his glory. Thank God for the blood of Jesus that can get us through these things. But let me just go through some of them just because. I think it's sometimes good to just say, maybe it's good for people who are feeling like, well, you know, I'm really not that bad of a person. Well, you know what? When I read through this list, I was like, okay, that's some pretty straightforward thing. Now, granted, some of them are part of a ceremonial law. They maybe not be applicable to, since I'm not part of that to Jewish uh, nation. But still, the principle is involved. Here's just some A's and a few B's. It goes all the way through to Z there. But uh, A, abortion. Not abstaining from the appearance of evil. Adultery. Not acknowledging our sins. And he gives a verse for each of these. Afraid to confess Jesus. Anxious. Philippians 4.6. Arrogance. All kinds of verses for that. Ashamed. Uh, assault. Exodus 21.18.19. Astrology. We'll be talking about that tonight. Backbiting. Refusing to be baptized. Bitterness. Blasphemy, boasting, causing a child to sin, enticing a child to turn away from God, and it is on it goes. A, B, I mean, and I was just skipping some of them there, but folks, 667. Now, the reason I do that is for this reason, folks. This is not meant to condemn us, just to sober us, maybe, to convict us, to trigger, perhaps, a godly shame reflex. We all need shame. Sometimes I'm wondering, some of the choruses we sing, we talk about, you know, no more shame, and that's good. I'm thankful when Jesus takes away the shame. But we should be sure to realize that we need to repent of our sin. That's when the shame goes away. Just for the fact of not feeling guilty anymore, that's not especially what it's supposed to be. In fact, being convicted of our sin is a very good thing. It's a godly thing. Though very unpopular for the modern church, I will tell you that. But if I can stop something that is prohibiting God from blessing me, blocking his favor, it only seems wise. David, from painful experience, said this in Psalms chapter 66 and verse 18. If I regard iniquity, there's that word again, if I regard iniquity in my heart, it's as simple as this. The Lord just won't hear me. And he's like, you know what? Go fix this deliberate disobedience and then we'll talk. Maybe it's some sin in my past. Notice the word regard. If I regard a sin in the past, meaning unconfessed, unjudged, it's there. And we say, oh, well, it's, it happened five years ago or ten years ago. Just so we remember, God is timeless. That's not a that doesn't work with God. God, I mean, if someone hurts you, they stole from you 10 years ago, certainly it's, you probably, you know, let it go. But the fact of the matter is you wouldn't mind being, having justice taken care of. Regardless, regarding sins in the past, and then maybe regarding sins in the present, cherishing my sin, rolling over in my mouth, saying, you know, it's fun, even rationalizing my sin, hiding my sin. That's regarding what David said. He said it just doesn't work, doesn't prosper. Notice what it says, just in case we're wondering, God will not hear. It's not that he can't hear, it's just that he will not hear. Now, how do I know if there's anything in my life, how do I know if maybe one of these 667 things or something else is bothering, hindering my prayer life? Here's a good indication. Dr. Ari Torrey says, a good indication of something that might be between you and God is anything that comes up in your moments of private communion, your times with God. For example, you go to the Lord, you're by yourself, you're talking to Him, you say, Lord, 
Is there anything in my life that would keep you from blessing me? Is there anything that would hinder you answering my prayer? Now, folks, <laughs> as painful as that is, maybe, as scary as that might be, the fact of the matter is that is a very smart thing to do. Because it's not something we can't change. It's not something God can't forgive. It's not something that we can't get grace to overcome and get through. We can do this. And then the blessings begin to just flow in a way we never thought possible. Now these things may not even be so sinful, per se. But if it hinders God, put it away. Imagine with me for a moment you're a contestant in a track meet. You're lining up for that 100-yard dash. You're kicking off that cinders off of your track shoes there. And you look over at your fellow competitors and everyone's in good shape except for one guy. He is obviously in his troubles. I mean, he is drunk, he's high or something because he's having a hard time standing, he's slurring his speech. There's no way he's going to even be able to take off, let alone run down the way. He's got problems. And if you're going to run the race, you can't live like that. Oh, and then you look over and there's another person. He's, instead of his shorts and his track shoes, he's wearing a snowmobile suit. And he's got big old galoshes on. Now, is that against the rules? Well, no. It's not against the rules, not like the drunk guy. But it's totally inappropriate. It's certainly inefficient. He is not going to win. In fact, he's probably going to trip and fall down, hurt something, break something. It's kind of like what Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 12. All things that are biblical are lawful, but they're not always expedient. Not all things are expedient. They're not the proper thing. They're not the best thing. If there's something between me and God that's hindering, whether it's sin or maybe it's not even so much so sinful, it's just something that doesn't help the race that I'm running. God says a selfish purpose and a sinful proceeding would hinder my prayers. And then number three, a sidetracked passion. God's powerful message to the prophet Ezekiel was crystal clear. In chapter 14 of that book, Son of Man, I love that statement. I love the book of Ezekiel over and over again, that God be God. These men have set up idols in their hearts and have put the stumbling block of their iniquity before their face. Why should I answer them? Should I be inquired of them at all by them? I mean, why would you even want to pray if you set up idols in your heart? Why pray to God when you have an idol in your own heart? Idols cause God to refuse to listen to our prayer. Now what is an idol? An idol is a sidetracked passion. It's having a passion for something that we're not supposed to. Anything that takes the place of God, anything that becomes an object of our supreme affection. God and God alone has the right of our foremost worship. I would like to offer today at least two common idols we make, assuming you're not out worshiping cows. Number one, we can make an idol of a person. Now you should know it is impossible to love somebody too much. Granted, you can't love somebody too much, but you can put that person before God. Here's a guy who loves his gal so much. He chooses her happiness over God's. And if for some reason she's the type that wants to lay out of church quite often. So instead of honoring God on the first day of the week, you just go hither and there, wherever she wants to go. And sir, if that's the case, you are following her like a puppy on a leash. And friend, she has become your idol. God is second place. He will not hear your prayers. Many a mother makes an idol of her children. You cannot love your children too much, but you certainly can put them before God. Their interests above God's interests. And when we do this, whether we be a mother or a father or a grandchild, we are making our children, our grandchildren, our idols. 
We can make an idol of our person. Number two, we can make an idol of a position. Many a man makes an idol of his reputation or of his business or his job or his career or even a sport. They put it before God. God's clear. He said, I won't answer your prayers if that's the case. We've been studying the amazing book of Samuel on first on Sunday nights. And by the way, I hope you come back tonight. It's amazing. This chapter 28 as we get into the occult and all the, this, the amazing story of the witch of Endor is one of the most unique in all the Bible. But Saul was an egocentric king. He wanted his kingdom above anything. He didn't care what God wanted, anybody wanted. And he was always putting himself before God. Look what it says in 1 Samuel chapter 20, verse 6. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord answered him not. He said, no, I'm not going to listen to you. You can ask all you want. I'm not going to answer you. Neither by dreams. He didn't give him any special vision. Kind of worked. God worked in ways like that. According to Hebrews chapter 1, God worked in those days like that. No by Urim. That was a special way that the high priest could have ascertain the will of God, a special little method, nor by the prophets. God didn't speak in any way. God didn't give him an answer. No way. God, heaven was as silent, was dead as a hammer to him. Folks, a silent heaven, that is literally a deafening truth. Now, is God absolutely first in your life? Is he first in your love? Is he first in your labor? Years ago, I used to wear a little pin on my lapel. It said, Jesus first. It had a little cross on it. It was a good reminder. But I lost it somewhere. I'm afraid too many people have lost their Jesus first pin along with me. You may have never had one. But my friend, when we lose that Jesus first passion, we have misplaced and sidetracked our passion for God. There is a fourth reason this morning that we have an obstacle to prayer, and that is a stingy perspective. In Proverbs chapter 21, verse 13, Solomon says, Whoso stoppeth his ears at the cry of the poor, he shall cry himself, but shall not be heard. There is perhaps no greater, no more clear hindrance to prayer. A lack of liberality towards the needy and towards God's work is just God just shuts down heaven. God blesses a liberal heart. When we think of the selfishness of the modern first world church today, it is mind-boggling. Research from Gray Matter, research study, they said that they have done a study, they have found that only one in ten evangelical members tithe. I think that's actually generous. Tithing, which means to obey God and giving 10%. Half give less than 1% of their income annually. No wonder the church has so little power in prayer. If we would get from God, we must give to God. God clarified this through the Apostle Paul about as good as it gets. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 6 and that great epistle to that young preacher, Timothy. He said, charge them that are rich in this world. 1 Timothy 6 and verse 17. Charge them. Don't let them wiggle out from this. Don't be afraid to tell them, Timothy. Look them straight in the eye and tell them. You are rich in this world. Folks, the American people are rich in this world. We are richer than 90, 90% of the world, pretty much. Have you ever realize how much food is wasted per person in the United States alone? I did a little Google search this week. It is estimated that 30 to 40 percent of our entire U.S. food supply is wasted every year. They, reckon, they feel like 220 pounds of food is wasted per person every year in the U.S. Folks, we are rich in this world. That's just our food. God says, if you're rich in this world, verse 18, then you should do good. You should live to do good. Not to just have fun. I mean, I, I'm, I, I'm like everybody else. I want to have fun. 
But my reason for living is not to have fun, but to do good things. God says that they do good. Think, for example, all the good that's going on in this campus every day of the week. It's like a, like a wonderful spiritual life center. In a few uh, weeks, a couple months here, we hope to be able to start remodeling that new children that you send. Someday, I would love to expand maybe our property around here, buy some more land, expand our Christian education system for youth and children. Folks, our public school system is a moral catastrophe. We simply cannot send your children to the public schools anymore. We have to provide low-cost places for people to educate their children and home educate and help them. Telling you folks, think of the good. He said, do good with what I give you. Do good. You're rich in this world, do good with it. That they be rich in good works. Ready to distribute. Ready quickly. You shouldn't have to, should not be like pulling teeth, you know, good night. Willing to communicate. You ought to be just looking for things to give to. Laying up, and here's the great benefit. Here's the kicker, verse 9. Crazy. Really? Laying up in store for yourselves a good foundation. When you take all these riches, and we are rich, we are rich. God says, learn to do good with it and be quick about it. And he said, here's the amazing thing. You're just storing up blessings for yourself, a great foundation in the time to come. It's a win-win. A story I read comes from the distant past. And yet I think it speaks forcibly into our present day. King Henry IV of France once asked the Duke of Alva if he had observed the recent eclipse of the sun. No, the Duke famously said, I have so much to do on earth, I have no such leisure to look up into the heavens. Not much has changed over the years. So many today are so busy about the they never really look up to the things they can do for heaven. And God wants us to have a perspective to be a generous person. Number five, not only a selfish purpose, a sinful proceeding, a sidetracked passion, a stingy perspective, but a spiteful principle. Clearly, God says if we have a hateful, unforgiving heart, we're not going to get our prayers answered. Jesus said in Mark eleven twenty five, when you stand praying, forgive. Don't have hatred in your heart, because if you have all against any, that your Father which is in heaven also may forgive you. A spiteful, unforgiving spirit pretty much is one of the most common problems for a buried prayer. God simply will not deal with us as He should, as we would like, if we have hatred in our heart. Now, it is not wrong to hate. It's just wrong to hate the wrong things of people. For example, we're supposed to hate evil. In Psalm 97, it, the psalmist said, now, without any hatred or hostility in his heart, he said, ye that love the Lord hate evil. Now, we hate sin by recognizing what sin is. Not only in others' lives, but our own life. What it does to people, what sin does to marriages and children and families. Now we love sinners, we forgive sinners by praying for them. We love people by hating the sin and witnessing to them. It's certainly not hateful to love a person enough to tell them that they need Jesus Christ. I think for some reason many Christians have forgotten the mission. And we're beginning to hate the sinner instead of the sin. Maybe the great apostle gives the best answer. He said, if you want to know how to differentiate the two, how to juggle this, he said, here's how it's done. Romans chapter 12, verse 20. That wonderful, practical 12th chapter of Romans, it's an amazing chapter, I love it. Romans chapter 12, verse 20. Therefore, if thine enemy, now I don't hate him, but he hates me probably, doesn't like me, doesn't like what I do, whatever, case is, he's an enemy. I don't, I'm not bitter against him, but if he's an enemy, then always remember you should feed him. If he's thirsty, get him to drink. 
What do you do? Verse 21. Overcome evil with good. Just keep giving to them. Reaching out to them. It doesn't say you have to be best friends. It doesn't say you have to let them live in your house especially. But it does say we should not live with hatred in our heart towards people. And expect any answers from God. It doesn't work that way. I was in my late 20s. I was pastoring this church way a long time ago. On the part of town. When God blessed us with our third child, Elizabeth, Evie, as she's known, she was uh, a little bit lower weight and had some jaundice issues. So, uh, the, and some other things. So, they uh, said she must stay in the hospital and she was not able to come home. Now, that is absolutely the worst thing you can tell to any new mother is you are not taking your baby home from the hospital. It's not easy for a father as well. Well, as we were waiting uh, there at St. Joseph's Hospital, I was walking up and down the hallways, praying. It was the middle of the night. People were, once in a while they'd kind of look at me, one of the nurses would look at me, but I was up walking up and down those hallways, praying that God would heal her enough to let her out of the hospital. But I felt like heaven was at us. Brass. It was like a, a lid was on my head. My prayers, I just knew my prayers weren't going anywhere. So, after I prayed for a while, I finally said, Lord, is there something that's between you and I? Is there an issue here that I need to take care of? And I mean, no sooner had I said that when God brought to my mind someone who I had been frankly hateful to. I will tell you, at that moment, I really didn't care much about that issue as much as I wanted my baby daughter to be healed. And as soon as they made pain, I settled the matter as far as I could. Thank you, Jesus. A couple hours later, that happy nurse came out and told us, they said, amazingly, all of her tests have turned positive, and as soon as the doctor comes, you'll be able to take that little girl home. Praise God. Nothing between my soul and the Savior, so that his blessed face may be seen. Nothing preventing the least of his favor. Keep the way clear. Let nothing between. There is a sixth issue that we need to talk about. This one's not really pleasant for some, and that is a strifeful partnership. This one hits close to home. Peter talks about our relationship between husbands and wives. In 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 7, Likewise, ye husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife as to the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life. Now listen to this. That your prayers be not hindered. That your prayers be not hindered. You want a good relationship with your wife, of course, because it just makes life easier. You want a good relationship with your husband because it's just a better way to go. But one of the biggest reasons is so that when you pray, God will hear your prayers. God says it doesn't work. Sorry, you can't be bitter at your husband or wife and then think you can just come to me and everything's hunky dory. It doesn't work that way. He said, you must reconcile because you are one. And because you're one, it doesn't work to do anything else. Now, my outline point, I say partnership. But just so we're clear, I am meaning a legally, biblically married, biological man and a biological woman. But Peter here in the epistle says, it's very clear. A husband and a wife need to be on the same page. Or your prayers will be blocked. Here's a man, he's very active in ministry, but he's an angry man, harsh, threatening. He destroys the very heart of his wife and children. Or sometimes it's the opposite. He's so passive and apathetic, he effectively abandons his home. Is it any wonder then that the Heavenly Father will not endorse his prayers? Here's a woman who is very devoted to religious things. Yet she treats her dog better than she treats her husband. She's cross, she's spiteful, 
wounds him with short, sharp words, and then wonders somehow, why doesn't God answer her prayer? Now there are other relationships in the, between a husband and wife that this is not the form to speak of, but I will say this. Doubtless, that also plays into these hindrances of prayer. Any man, any woman whose prayer does not come to me need to go to God, lay their married life before the Lord and say, God, put your finger on anything that is displeasing in your sight. We want to be right with God. And I want God to answer our prayers. It's not always easy to have a good relationship. Thank God he can make that happen. A husband was told by his marriage counselor that trying to be more considerate of his wife. So one day he comes home from work. He's all dressed up in a suit. He has cologne on. He has a bouquet of flowers and a box of candy in his hands. He rings the doorbell and he's standing there as she opens the door. He holds out the flower and the box of candy. The wife opens the door, takes one look at him standing there and bursts out into tears. And in between her sobs, she says, oh, I can't believe it. Little Johnny has been throwing up all day. The dishwasher just broke. Your parents are coming to visit this weekend. And to top it all off, you have come home drunk. <laughs> yeah, sometimes there are issues, aren't there? Hopefully that's not one. Now finally, this morning, a skeptical presumption. And this really is perhaps uh, the greatest barricade of all. It's found in that wonderful passage, James chapter 1, verse number 6, but let him ask in faith. We must learn to ask in faith. Verse 7, for let not that man think that he shall receive anything. If we don't have faith, we're not going to get it from the Lord. Now just so we're clear about faith, faith isn't just working up this feeling like it's going to happen, it's going to happen, it's going to happen. That's not faith. Faith always comes from the Word of God. Anything that I work up is nothing more than emotion, pretty much. If I can, however, stand on promise, if I can get a hold of God and His Word, then things begin to happen. It is absolutely presumption on our part to think that God would answer our prayers if we don't have a 100% belief and a standing on the Word of God. I would suggest this morning there are at least two times when many of us doubt God in this area. Number one, we neglect the Bible. We neglect the Bible. I mean, it might be several days where we don't read our Bible. It might even be weeks. It might even be longer. We don't even crack open our Bible or turn on our eye Bible. Unless we're at church, I mean, that's it. Folks, we've got to be in the Bible outside of church. Now, I'm glad we're in it here in church. It's got to be other times as well. We won't put it on our cell phone and listen to it. I mean, it's so convenient and so really easy to just put the Bible on your iPhone and it be on your your uh, smartphone and just let it just play or whatever. It's just so easy to do. But we don't even do that. We don't play it on our vehicle while we're driving. We don't get a verse and fix it in our mind. We don't get a phrase of a verse. We don't nail it to the wall of our mind by hammering it there, by repeating it over and over again. For example, do you have a, do you have a, a, a verse right now hammered in your mind? from today. Do you have one? Do you have a phrase? That you're praying. Do you have a promise that you prayed this morning? I do. Do you have a promise that you hang on to this morning? If you, if you go into a day without hanging on to a promise, my friend, God's like, you don't believe the Bible. You, you don't hold on to the Word of God. We need, a, we need a verse. We need a part of a verse at least. And in my case, i got a just a little phrase there. Psalm 37, he says, He upholds the righteous. He upholds the righteous. Hold. God, hold up my life today. I prayed for my wife. I prayed for 
many of you prayed for our worship team, prayed by name. Many people here at Dalton, even right now, looking at you. Oh God, hold them up. Oh God. Now, when we, if we don't get something we hold on to, that's neglecting the Bible. And there's so many ways to do that. And I mean, there's so many promises. There's thousands of them in the Bible. You certainly can't say, I can't find one. That's like a criminal trying to find a policeman. I don't think they're looking very hard, you know. I think if we would just look easily, as I said before, I just begin reading through a chapter, and I just read until something like, little like light bulbs are on that phrase. Oh, that's when I stop. And I most likely will take that. Well, I occasionally I'll keep going, but usually it's when I get that first little poke. That's why I say pray the poke. <laughs> Pray the poke. When the Holy Spirit pokes you, then that's what I'm going to pray. And then maybe write it on a 3 by 5 card or put it on your phone to come up every hour. And uh, there's so many different things. I mean, just have it speak to you. Don't neglect the Bible outside of Sunday. I mean, I know we don't on Sunday. We're in the Word. But on Monday or Tuesday, get a verse. It doesn't take long. It can take a minute or two. And then, if, if, but if we neglect the Bible, we can't, we're not praying in faith. But not only if we neglect the Bible, if we negate the Bible. That is, we question the Bible. We doubt its authenticity. We dismiss its relevance. We chafe at its holiness. We look for loopholes so that we don't have to obey everything. We're embarrassed by its truths. Folks, never be embarrassed by a Bible preacher. Never be embarrassed by a hellfire, damnation, word of God. Never be embarrassed by how extreme the Bible seems. Folks, God, it's just that we've gotten so subnormal. If anything is ever preached normal, it sounds abnormal. God wants us to live and love, love the word of God. And don't negate the Bible by not believing in it, basically, when we do that. Doing nothing more than calling God a liar. And I don't want to live in such a way that I live negating the Word of God. I don't want to neglect the Bible, nor do I want to negate the Bible. Have you ever seen a straight river? Now, canals are straight, but all rivers, even some that look relatively straight, are crooked. Now, why are rivers crooked? Because the natural tendency of a river is to take the easiest way around any obstacles, any hindrance. Rivers are always crooked. And they always run downhill. Too many Christians are like rivers. Unwilling to put any effort into walking with God. Meandering this way, meandering that way, just going around every hindrance. And in so doing, they go downhill. I want to be a canal Christian. I want to live my life in such a way that when God opens up His floodly, His heavenly floodgates, the blessings of God just flow straight to others. And I'm God's canal. I'm God's channel of blessings to others. We hope you enjoyed listening to the preaching and teaching from God's Word today. You can get more information about our church and about starting a relationship with Jesus Christ at www.thehomechurch.net. From all of us here at The Home Church in Lodi, California, thank you for joining us.